as we um, celebrate our first year, and we can never forget just the great gift um, that our planting church Crossroads gave us. Um, and this morning we get to celebrate that um, as we did a little flip-flop, you could say, um, where we sent Ken to Crossroads and we uh, brought Rod here. Um, so if you guys want to welcome Rod, and uh, we'll just welcome him and excited to hear what he has to say. bringing that now to your church. <laughs> okay. Honored to be here. Exciting to just see what God's already doing in this church. You guys are one years old now, right? Wow, that's just, I know, that's something really to get excited about. You guys can clap that one up a little bit if you want to. <laughs> and I'm borrowing a little bit right now from Tim Keller, but we, we tell our church all the time, uh, something that he says, and I think you guys probably hear this in its various forms, but our church crossroads does not exist for ourselves. And we don't even just exist to hold services. We exist for the city of Grand Rapids and for the nations. And I think sometimes one of the things that we forget is that when God looks down, he sees one church in Grand Rapids. And he really sees one church all over the globe. And we get to partner together. And Crossroads, I just want to speak for our church right now. We so appreciate the partnership that we have with this church and look forward to all the things that God is going to do uh, through this partnership for the sake of Grand Rapids and, and maybe even the nations. So anyway, am I still, I feel like I'm ringing Am I ringing a little bit? Is there anything I can do? I'll just put this away a little away from my mouth. Um, okay. Ken asked me to preach on something very specific today. Discipleship. Is that what you guys are in today or not? It's the first one? Okay, so I said, do you want me to like kind of like kind of just get close to it or do you want me to bullseye it? And he said, bullseye it. So... I'm going to, uh, in light of talking to him, I'm trying to serve him and, and, and his leadership well. I'll tell you what, the fact that you guys are going to hit this tells me a lot about Ken, tells me a lot about this church. I feel discipleship is one of the church's blind spots today. Massive blind spot. I'm not the only person that thinks this way. Um, Dallas Willard uh, recently said this. He said, non-discipleship is the elephant in the room of the church. Non-discipleship. And part of it is because we have made the Christian thing all what you believe. Now hear me. What we believe is incredibly important incredibly important. In fact, I feel like in many ways the church is cowering away from just believing big about the big things that God has given us. But if you reduce this whole thing to just what a person believes, think about it, what do we call Christians? Believers. Um, and, and I would say historically, 
This goes back to the creeds. Now again, when the church was formulating, it had to formulate what it believed. And the creeds are important. And sadly today, I don't know if, if the church even knows the creeds, like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. Um, but, but take the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Like, what a great conviction for someone to have. I believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, ascended. Awesome convictions. Something's missing, though. It goes, being born of the Virgin Mary, to crucified, dead, and buried. Skipped over Jesus' whole life. And I know that those who are formulating the creeds weren't saying that Jesus' life didn't matter, but the Gospels tell us a lot about Jesus' life. They tell us a lot about his ministry and what was the ministry of Jesus. We'll go in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. I'll start at uh, verse 14. After John, that's referring to that person we call John the Baptist, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. And what is the gospel of God? It's this, the kingdom has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I mean, that, that, that is the message of Jesus. Everywhere he went, he is preaching this message of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the awesome news that behold, God is making all things new. New creation. God's reign is breaking into the chaos of our world and, and, and bringing shalom, uh, making things new. Um, and that starts with us. And the, the message of Jesus, uh, the kingdom of heaven being here, also uh, implies something pretty incredible. Not just the kingdom, but every kingdom has a king. So he's also saying the king is here. And that was his message. But the next verses say, Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen, Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make uh, you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets, they dropped them, followed Jesus. When they'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. Same words. Come follow me. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. And they followed Jesus. Now, I connect the dots. I connect the dots of Jesus' message that the king and the kingdom are here, that new creation now has begun with this call, which is his ministry of come follow me, the ministry of discipleship. And now that we just have talked about maybe how this is a blind spot. I also think when we talk discipleship itself, 
I think that we are so removed from the way in which Jesus did this in the first century. Um, Are you a disciple of Jesus? Do you know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Begins with this call. Come follow me. In fact, I've studied the first century context enough to know, and scholars are saying this, that um, this, Jesus would not have said this in the Greek. Uh, he probably would have said this in the Hebrew because that was the language of the synagogue and the temple and anything religious that day. You would have uh, done that in the Hebrew. And so Jesus uh, in Hebrew, follow me, come follow me, is the Hebrew phrase lech acharai, which literally means to walk after me. Which is quite a, quite, quite a call. Basically what Jesus is saying is, park your life right behind my life. Walk after me. Follow me. Have you heard that call? This is not a call to meet with Jesus once a week at Starbucks. This is not a call to even what we're doing this morning, hear a sermon or a sermon series on discipleship. Uh, this is not a call to, to take a class on discipleship. Uh, this is a call to be with Jesus 24-7, 365. In fact, in Mark 3, verse 14, it says, He appointed the 12 that they might be with him. The call to be a disciple of Jesus starts with that basic thing. It's the call to be with Jesus. First century discipleship, um, which by the way, a rabbi with disciples, which is what Jesus is, is, is stepping into, is not unique to, G to Jesus. In fact, some of the scholars that I really trust who study the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in light of his first century uh, context, say that during the time of Jesus, there were hundreds of rabbis who had disciples. Galilee was a, was a hotbed for this. And in Jesus' day, um, discipleship absolutely required a rabbi. You couldn't, you couldn't be a disciple without having a rabbi. Now, what's a rabbi? Well, a rabbi would be a mentor, a teacher, a coach, a father, a spiritual mother, a spiritual father. And, and they were the ones who taught their disciples how to walk. Because that's how ancients saw life. They, they, they saw life as, as a walk. And they saw this whole thing of, of, of walking as something that was lost in the Garden of Eden. The thing that most defined Adam and Eve's existence in the Garden of Eden is that they walked. They walked with God in the cool of the day. And when they walked away from God and they lost the garden and they lost God, they also lost how to walk. God's first words to Abraham were, Lech lecha, get up and start walking. I'm going to teach the human race how to walk again. And so because the ancients saw life as a walk, in this walk, they said, 
I need to know where to walk, and I need to know how to walk. Which means I need two things. I need the right path, because as we know, there's all kinds of paths that a person can choose, and the ancients understood that there's, there is a path that will bring life, life to the full, but it's narrow. And that the broad path would lead to destruction. This is why they love what they call Torah, which we call the Bible, God's word. They loved it because God's word is actually God's instruction on the path that we are called to walk. So many verses like Psalm 119 where it says, your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. So the way to know God's path was, was, was to know God's word, which is why uh, they, they set their mind and their heart to knowing this so they could walk it. But not only do I need a right path, I also need someone who is in front of me, not just to inspire me, but someone who has learned God's path, who's walking that path with total commitment. That's what a rabbi was in the first century. It was someone who devoted their life to knowing God, to finding God's path through the text, and then walking that path out with total commitment. And then they had the guts to say to other people, come follow me. Walk after me as I walk out the path that God has called me to walk. Jesus came to the world to be many things. He is the Lord. He came to be a savior. He came to be a friend. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that Jesus also came to the world to be a rabbi? In fact, I think this is the genius of Jesus' movement because what he was as a rabbi is he reproduced himself in just a few people, which means his movement didn't end with his death. It only got started because the few who got behind Jesus and learned to walk like Jesus and walk the path that Jesus walked, it changed the whole world. It changed it. And you can ask, well, well, well how did they do that? And my answer to that is simple. They took Jesus' mandate pretty seriously where Jesus said, I now want you to go into all the world and I want you to make disciples. I want you to teach them how to walk the way I showed you how to walk. In fact, listen to one of Jesus' disciples, John. John writes this in 1 John 2 verse 6. He says, if anyone is in Christ, or some of your translation says, if anyone abides in Christ, he must walk as Jesus walked. Must walk as Jesus walked. How are you walking? Are you a disciple? Listen to Paul, who, who kind of joins the ranks of the apostles a little bit later, but, but he gets... Uh, on, on page with them in terms of their mission, he writes to a small community of disciples in Corinth, and he says, walk after me as I walk after Christ. 
And we kind of think, wow, that's a little bit of an arrogant statement. No, it's not. That is a disciple-making statement. That is a, that is a statement that a disciple who has found Christ, who is committed to knowing Christ and knowing his path and walking that path, can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Have you said that to anybody? Now, the way a rabbi taught his disciples how to walk, you know, it wasn't so much through even what we're doing right now. It wasn't through sermons or seminars or lectures. It was primarily through relationship. In fact, it was a pretty intense relationship, so intense that oftentimes the, the rabbi to disciple, that relationship was literally d- depicted like in terms of father and a son. Now, the goal of this relationship was so much more than just to pass on knowledge. Of course, it involved this. In fact, a disciple uh, in Jesus' day would literally memorize their rabbi's teachings, all of them. That's why when people ask me, like, okay, how did someone like Matthew, who was a follower of Jesus, how did he years later remember to the word what Jesus said so he could give us Matthew's gospel? How could John do that? So we we have John's gospel. They memorized the words of Jesus. But the primary purpose of of this rabbi-disciple relationship, it wasn't so the disciple could know everything that the rabbi knew or, or recite some creed. It was to become all that that rabbi was. So it was a call to be with the rabbi, to become like the rabbi so you could walk like the rabbi. Now I want you to hear what these disciples heard when Jesus came up to them and said, Come follow me. Walk after me. One of the things they heard Jesus saying, it is so in this call, is Jesus telling them, I'm going to call you if I don't believe you can actually do it. Jesus is saying to them, I believe that you can become like me. In fact, I'm even going to push it further. It's in the call, implicit in the call, is Jesus' belief that they can become like Jesus. Now, I'm the product today of of many things. But anything that I am for the Lord, I am the product of parents, teachers, coaches, mentors, spiritual fathers, who have just poured their walk with Christ into me. I could name 10 people right now who just took me under their wing. I'll tell you what all 10 of these people had in common. Every one of them believed in me. They absolutely believed in me when I didn't believe in me. The greatest gift my parents ever gave to me Yes, they were hard on me. Yes, they called me to a high thing. They didn't coddle me. But they always believed in me. Rabbi Akiva, 
who existed a generation after Jesus, said, it's a sin to tell someone to believe in God without first telling them how much God believes in them. One of the reasons why I coach football. Football is just the excuse. It gives me the opportunity to believe in the next generation of men. Believe in them when they can't even see what they bring to the table. And I want us to see how much this is at the heart of Jesus. He is a spiritual father. He believes in these disciples. When he says to them, follow me, he really believes that they can follow him and become like him. In fact, Jesus also did something in his day that none of the rabbis did. He actually chose his disciples. With all the other rabbis, um, they, they would have prospective disciples come to them, maybe the same way someone would, would, would pick a school today and, and just hoping that they could get in, especially with these famous rabbis. Um, Jesus breaks with this tradition, and he is the one who actually does the choosing. Now think about this. Who did he choose? What should it tell us? that these guys are fishermen. Or a little bit later, he's going to call Levi, who's going to become Matthew. Do you know what he was? Tax collector. Now, that means nothing to us, but that was a chief trader. He would have had the label chief of sinners. Now, I don't know what was going on in Peter's life, but when Jesus called him, and you read about this in, in, in Luke chapter 5, um, I mean, the whole scenario is Peter's out fishing and can't catch any fish. Jesus says, dude, you're fishing on the wrong side of the boat, which would have been very insulting to a fisherman. So for some reason, Peter still listens to this guy on the shore and, and throws his net on the other side. Instantly, his net is full. The boat can't even carry all the fish. And his mind all of a sudden draws a conclusion. This is a man of God. He runs to, to this person, Jesus, falls at his feet and says, you get away from me. I'm a sinful person. You know what Jesus says? Do not be afraid, Peter. I believe in you. That one pricks my heart. These guys that Jesus picks, they're, they're, they're barely ordinary. They're less than ordinary but the reason why they have such authority in their lives, especially as their lives go out from the Gospels and post-Pentecost and they go into all the world. Jesus picked us. He believes in us. Do you know the power of having someone believe in you even when you don't believe in yourself? And that's God. That's Christ. In fact, I think the story that, that, that flushes out what discipleship was like in the first century is the story of Jesus walking on water. Um, we know the story, like disciples all night have been trying to get their boat from one shore to the next shore. They can't because of a storm. Uh, they're discouraged. They get to this place of fe feeling utter def utterly defeated. 
Uh, then on top of that, they see this ghost out there hovering. Uh, they're freaked out. Then they realize that ghost is Jesus. And Jesus, my goodness, is walking on water. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, would you call me? Would you command me to come? Because what Peter is asking with that question, does this thing that I've signed up for, to park my life behind your life, Jesus, to walk after you so I can walk like you and walk your path, does it apply to this? And what he wants to hear Jesus say to him is, Peter, I'm your rabbi. You're my disciple. Come. And you know what Jesus says to him? Come, Peter. First word that Peter ever heard Jesus say to him, come, lecha harai, walk after me. Come, Peter. And Peter gets out out of the boat. And here's something we forget. There are two people that we know of who ever walked on water. One is Jesus. The other is Peter. And he's walking. And then the text says he began to sink. And why did he sink? He took his eyes off Jesus. And and Jesus at that moment says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt Peter? Now here's the question. Who did Peter doubt? Did he doubt Jesus? Jesus is standing there on water. He doubted himself that he could become like Jesus. And I know this is where I find myself, and I think this is where so many of us find ourselves to be today, is there's so little thinking today amongst Christians, believers, that we can actually become like Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about becoming like Jesus in this self-righteous, arrogant sense. And I'm not even talking about the power of positive thinking or the power of positive reinforcement. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about the fact that when Jesus said, walk after me, so you can become like me. Do we believe that? Do we believe that for ourselves? If we're pouring our life into anyone today, whether we're parents pouring it into our children, or whether we're disciple makers who are pouring it into our disciples, do we actually believe that people can become like Jesus? C.S. Lewis said this. God said in the Bible that we were gods and he's going to make good on his words if we let him for we can prevent him if we choose. He will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or a goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror, which which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power, delight, and goodness. This perfect reflection of God, that's what 
Adam and Eve were made to be. This is why God made them in his image. This is why he entrusted all creation to them. This is what was lost in the garden. The image of God in us was marred. This is what God in Christ is restoring. And yes, he's doing it by being born and becoming a human and going to a cross and bearing all of our filth upon himself. And then being raised to unleash this new creation. But he also is doing it the way he's restoring the image of God in us. Come follow me. Become like me. And see, this is why significant things were left. This is why important things were dropped. Levi left task collecting. Peter, James, Andrew, and John, they left fishing because to be a disciple meant this total commitment. It, it, it meant that nothing would now become a rival in a person's life as compared to your pursuit of Jesus, becoming like him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was trying to correct the church in Germany in massive ways, he's someone we need to read. He's someone we need to listen to. He, he, he talks about uh, cheap grace versus costly grace. Uh, even wrote a whole book on the cost of discipleship. He says the call of Jesus begins with the call to abandon all attachments to the world. Not abandon the world. Uh uh. We're to be in the world. But it's the call to abandon all of our attachments to the world. So we don't have to abandon all our money, but we have to abandon our attachment to money, where money now just is money. A house is just a house. A job is just a job. Now listen, this idea of abandoning our attachments to the world pretty much goes against everything that we've been taught. I mean, our world screams at us that what we are to do is gain the world. Get as much of the world as we can. And yet Jesus' call includes this abandonment to the world, which is why this makes some of us sad. Like the rich young ruler, it made him sad. He could just walk away from Jesus being sad. It's why other people in the text um, also who wanted to follow Jesus uh, but, but were so attached to the things of the world, they, they went away sad. Those disciples, when, when Jesus called them, please, don't think for a moment that they're like, oh, shoot, I got to drop my nets and leave my job and buy dad in the boat and I got to go follow Jesus. Are you kidding me? It'd be like Michael Jordan showing up at some 10-year-old's house whose goal is to make it to the NBA. Him saying, hey man, you want me to teach you how to play basketball? And those kids, they went home that day and they're like, Jesus, he called me to be his disciple. And see, the reason why we can give up anything is because we find something worth more than the thing we're giving up. 
This is why a disciple can abandon all worldly attachments is because they have found something worth losing everything for. This is why all these first century idioms were developed to, to describe this close relationship between a rabbi and a disciple. Idioms like to sit at someone's feet or to drink in their words thirstily. My favorite is to be covered in their dust. You're going to park your life so close to this person. You're going to be right behind them. And as they're walking and kicking up the dust, you're going to be covered with it. Have you heard this call? I'm not saying it has to be something audible. The call is still the same. You heard Jesus call you to come follow him. Are you a disciple today? How badly do you want him? How much time do you spend with him? Who's in your life right now? Who's ahead of you? That you're parked behind? See, this is where I think we're just missing it. We have people striving to be disciples with no rabbi, no mentor, no coach, no spiritual father, no spiritual mother, which is why so many are just left to figure out on their own what this Christian thing is all about. And then we wonder why there's so few disciples. You cannot be a disciple unless you have a rabbi, a coach, a disciple maker, a spiritual father, a spiritual mother in your life. And yes, this absolutely begins with Jesus. And we need to find Jesus where he is. He is in the book. We have these gospels. But he's from cover to cover in the book. It's here where he shows us how to walk. He shows us the path to walk. And we learn that his walk is radical as compared to the world. The path that he walks as compared to the world too, it's, it's radical. It's the complete opposite of the world. The world says go up, Jesus says go down. The world says you need to get a life and find a life, and Jesus says no, you need to lose your life, you need to give up your life. The world says you need to love yourself. Jesus says, no, you don't. You need to deny yourself. You need to lose yourself so you can actually love God and love others as yourself. The world says, blessed are the rich and the famous. Jesus says, uh-uh, blessed are the poor and the powerless. Are you following him? Are you becoming like him? As much as we need... Jesus, we, I, I think we need Pauls in our life, people who can look at us and say, walk after me as I walk after Christ. This is why Paul exhorts the elders. He says, you guys need to have lives worth emulating. You need to be able to teach this, impart it to the next generation who can impart it to others. That's why the Psalms always say, let one generation declare the praise of God to the next generation. That's why in Titus 2, uh, Paul exhorts the women, the older women, to, to, to pour their lives into the younger women. This needs to be the substance and the guts of a church. It can't just be a stage and an audience on a Sunday morning. Dawson Trotman, one of my heroes, 
I think his question that he asked decades ago is just as valid today. He asked, where are your men? Where are your women who have a passion for God, who have a passion for God's word, who have a passion for taking it in, living it out? Where are they? I think the church, especially in the West, needs this like never before. Because never before has the church in the West had more in terms of buildings, resources, programs, books, schools, all this political posturing. I mean, billions of dollars have been spent on these things. And yet, in my opinion, the church has never been so impotent. Ask yourself, is the church a force today in Grand Rapids? Philip Zimbardo, who's the chair of the American Psychological Association, not a Christian, wrote a book called The Demise of Guys, where he sounds the alarm on how the proliferation of video games and pornography has taken out a whole generation of young men who no longer have basic social skills, they have an inability to enter meaningful relationships, and they lack purpose and direction. He says the average young person will spend 10,000 hours gaming by age 21. To make this mean something to us, the average college student, will, it, it will take half that time, 4,800 hours to earn a bachelor's degree. And listen, this isn't just to pick on young men. To some degree, we're all wasting our lives. Think about the way we all look at our screens like a bunch of zombies. Cavaggio, the great Renaissance artist, painted what I think is one of the great paintings that came out of the Renaissance. It's a young, handsome man who's leaning over this clear stream where he's just looking at a reflection of himself. And he can't stop looking at himself. And you know what he titled it? Narcissist. And I think, how prophetic. We can't stop looking at ourselves. We're consumed with ourselves. And no one has a solution to it. Jesus does. Come follow me. Lose your life. Stop obsessing with yourself. And put your life behind me. And get consumed with me. And how I walk. In my path. Twelve men. Changed their world. For Christ. <laughs> Rome, Herod's, gates of hell couldn't stand against them. And I'll tell you why they changed the world for Christ. They had a message that was amazing called the gospel. But they became the message. These 12 men became like Jesus. C.S. Lewis says, it's easy to think that the church has a lot of different objectives, education, building missions, holding services, but the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ and to make them little Christ's. 
If the church is not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. I am convinced that if just 12 people in this room this morning have passion and were consumed with becoming like Jesus, that God could still once again change this city and change his world. For his, for his son. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this church. Thank you, God, for what you're doing here. Thank you, God, that when Adam and Eve walked away from you, that you did not give up on them. For God so loved the world. Yes, God, you gave your son to come to this world to die on a cross, to bear our sin. But God, you also came to this world to teach us how to walk. God, I pray that you would push that into this, this, this young church, that you would raise up a passion among young and old, men and women, who have a fire in their gut to become like you, to follow you, and God, to become like Paul's where they can one day say, follow me, walk after me as I walk after Christ. God, would that become the guts of this church for your glory? Amen.